This is our uh, final week of our Grace Anatomy series. This is week five. And um, I'm going to do something slightly different this morning, although I have said that every week over the last five weeks, so perhaps it isn't that different. But I want us to just to recap briefly about what we've learned. And then we're going to experience something together. And then we're going to worship together. And then I'm going to talk at the end about kind of where do we go from here in terms of grace, you know, as, as we move forward. What have we learned about grace over the last five weeks? I think one of the things we've learned is that grace is much more difficult to understand than we first thought. It's one of those words, isn't it, which is such a common word in our Christian faith. And we think we've got it nailed. We think we've got it, you know, we, we understand it. And yet I think many of us have discovered the last five weeks that it's very deep and it's, and it's a hard thing to understand. We've also discovered and perhaps learned as well that it's a little bit like a colour chart. You know, we talked about that as an illustration when you go to B&Q and you say, I want blue. And they give you a whole chart and there's loads of shades and grace has lots of shades. And the further you move in, the deeper you get, the more of God that is and the less it's about you. And so we've looked at things like kindness and mercy and forgiveness, and they're all shades of this thing called grace. I think we've also learned that grace is not only extravagant, God's grace is not only extravagant, but at times it can be absolutely scandalous. So we've looked at some stories from the Bible. We've looked at Mephibosheth from the Old Testament. We've looked at um, uh, Zacchaeus and Bartimaeus from the New Testament. We've looked at uh, the prodigal son and the elder brother. We've looked at Ruth. And these stories where there have been little stories of God's grace at work in people's lives have been extravagant and at times even scandalous as well. I think we've also looked at the fact that grace is really what we crave for and it's what we were created for. Let me read this to you. Grace is an energy, not a mere sentiment, not a mere thought of the Almighty, not even a word of the Almighty. It is as real an energy as the energy of electricity. It is a divine energy. It is the energy of the divine affection rolling in plenteousness towards the shores of human need. That's amazing use of words, isn't it? It's like the divine affection rolling in plenteousness towards the shores of human need. And I think the other thing that we've touched on these last five weeks, and certainly as I stand here today with all that's going on in the world, I have to declare this, the world needs grace like it's never needed it before. I don't know how many of you remember, some of you are too uh, young to remember, the end of the 80s. And you will remember, like I did, just those amazing scenes of the Berlin Wall coming down and the way the, the landscape of the world changed. And even though there had been a move of, of Glasnost and Perestroika, when that wall came down, it seemed to catch us all by surprise. In fact, a historian I read about, this is totally nothing to do with what a historian I read about was writing the history of the 80s. And he sent it off to publisher in October 89. And in November, I think it was, whenever the date was, uh, was the collapse of the Berlin Wall. <laughs> so he was a bit gutted. And uh, when, when, you <laughs> when, when you saw that, the world changed shape. I'll tell you what, I believe the world is changing shape right now. With what's happening in Egypt, what's happening in Tunisia, what may happen in Algeria and other countries in, in the Arab world, the world is changing shape. And we need to know more than anything that the world needs God's grace like never before. Isn't that right? And um, what I want to do this morning is I want to ask you a question. The question is, is grace still amazing to you? Is grace still amazing to you? Or actually, has grace become nice grace? How sweet the sound. Or adequate grace. Or okay grace. Or not bad grace. 
And what I'm going to do this morning as we, as we travel through our time together is I'm going to tell you various stories, grace stories. And I put something out on Facebook yesterday, because um, I'm like that, I'm down with the kids in it. Uh, I, I put this thing out on Facebook that said, what as an uh, English sailor, um, an African woman, a French prisoner and an American protest that all got in common. And some bright spark in the church, who will remain nameless, said they've all scored more goals than Emil Heskey. So uh, if you're a footballer, you'll understand. I thought thought that was quite funny. But that's actually not the truth. The truth is they're all linked by grace. And I want to introduce this character to you. Do anyone know who that is? People said at the nine o'clock, it's William Wilberforce. It isn't, it's John Newton. But pictures in that day, they all look the same, don't they? Have you noticed that? I think there was only one painter back there and he could do a man and a woman and they just all look the same. That is John Newton. Let me tell you the story of John Newton. At the age of 11, he leaves home. He's a bit of a rebel. Uh, he, like the Victory Outreach stories you heard about this morning. You know, and he, he went to a whole uh, wild lifestyle. He became a sailor. And at sea, he, he eventually started a business as a young man. But his business at sea was a horrific business. He would sail boats to the western shores of Africa where they would take slaves and they would transport them across the ocean and sell them into slavery. He lived an incredibly awful life. And yet at sea one day, uh, John Newton uh, was caught in in an incredible storm. A very hard man in fear for his life. And literally the fear of God gripped him. And uh, he, read, he was reading the book, or, he, or as a result of that, he read the book, The Imitation of Christ, which is a classic book by Thomas Akempis. And it so gripped him that he, that he had a genuine and authentic conversion to, to Christianity, gave his life to Christ. Now the thing is, he didn't stop slave trading then, which is interesting. Because actually grace can take some time to work in your life, can't it? Anyone ever experienced that? And Grace was working in his life and eventually it worked in his life so much that he said, you know what, I can't do this any longer. And he stopped slave trading and in fact, he went into the the ministry, he became an Anglican vicar at the age of 39. He was uh, appointed to the village of Olney in Cambridgeshire where where he pastored a church there. And throughout his ministry there, one of his great uh, kind of strengths, one of his great passions was introducing simple, heartfelt hymns of God's love and mercy and grace. And when he couldn't find them, he wrote his own with his friend William Cowper. And in 1779, they published a whole set of these hymns. One of those hymns was the hymn, Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound. And the other interesting thing about him is that towards the end of his life, he became a mentor to many of the politicians like William Wilberforce, who actually led that whole abolitionist movement to see slavery finished. And at the age of 82, John Newton died. And, but just before he died, one of his last preaches... He preached and he said, he said this, he said, my memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I am a great sinner and Christ is a great saviour. And all the way through his life, from that conversion experience at sea, right through to the end, grace was always amazing to John Newton. He never lost, it never became adequate grace or okay grace or quite nice grace. It was always amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch Like me, I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. And we deliberately have not used that hymn throughout this whole series because we wanted to save it till the very end. And what we're going to do this morning is going to ask Lee and the band to come back. And I've asked Lee to sing this song with the band, uh, not for you to sing it right now, but for you just to listen and to watch on the screens. And you're going to see some images, and then you're going to hear some of the grace stories that you guys have written on this board, on the cubicle, it's right around the back, and you'll see what the other sides are for later. But as you listen again to the songs of this great hymn, 
And, and as you'll hear the stories, not, of his, not from history now, not from the Bible, but from you guys, great stories from this community of faith, your stories. I'm praying that you'll be inspired this morning. And then we will continue and we will worship and we will celebrate God. Just a question, just a thought really. Please don't try when you hear the stories to try and work out whose story is who, okay? The voices you hear are not the stories, okay? They're just people that we've had to read the stories out. So don't try and get caught up in, oh, I know who that is. Because you totally missed the point. Just let the story inspire you. And the song Amazing Grace, let it lift your spirit again. And if grace has just become nice or okay for you, my hope and prayer this morning is that once again you'll say, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. Yesterday I was out walking in the afternoon with Alice and my wife and with Simeon. And we were walking around this park and just as we were walking around and uh, this song came to mind. I knew we were doing this song this this morning and I just really believe that God spoke to me about this one phrase which I know is a great phrase in the song empty handed but alive in your hands and then God spoke to me about two kinds of people that would be here this morning who actually this phrase empty handed means something different than other people and the first group that God spoke to me about was those that for you tomorrow Valentine's Day while all the world are getting caught up in that and getting all excited and silly about it for you it's going to be very painful because actually for you you've been through a relationship breakdown you're going through a relationship breakdown or you've not had that relationship that you've wanted and that you've been looking for and desiring and so for you relationally you feel empty-handed whereas everyone else appears full-handed and I believe God wanted me to speak to you this morning and say you may be empty-handed relationally but you are alive in God's hands. And my prayer for you is that over these next few minutes, hours, even days, that God would draw near to you as you draw near to Him. And that God would fill you with His grace and with His mercy and with His peace. And that while you are recovering from that relational breakdown, or while you are going through it, or while you are waiting for that relationship, you would know that even though you may have an empty-handedness about relationships, you're still alive and you can still live in God's hand. Did you know that? We're not who we are because of who, who the relationship we're in. We're who we are because of who we are in God. And the second group of people, I believe, was those of us, and that's probably many of you at the moment, whose work employment situation is a struggle and a challenge. We're aware as elders, when we meet together, we pray for you as a church. And one of the things we pray for a lot at the moment is those of you that are going through difficult employment situations. Some of you have lost your job. Some of you, there's that threat over your job. And again, when you lose your job, you can feel so empty-handed compared to everybody else. But I want you to know as well, I want you to know as well, sensitively as I can, you are still alive in God's hands. Did you know that? You may be out of work, but you are a child of God and you are alive in God's hands. And I believe that the Holy Spirit just wanted me to pray for you this morning. I'm not going to expose you in any way or make, it, make that vulnerable for you. But I want to just pray. And if that's relevant to you, if right now you say, do you know what, relationally I feel empty-handed. Or in my employment situation I feel empty-handed. Then I want to pray for you this morning. So can we pray? And just where you are, just engage with the Holy Spirit. And let me pray and then I'm going to speak um, prophetically, hopefully, into some situations there as well. So let's pray. Father... We just want to come to you this morning and God, in one sense, I know this song, in one sense, we're all empty handed but alive in your hands. But in another sense, there can be moments in our life where everybody else feels full handed and we seem empty handed. 
And God, I want to bring people to you right now who relationally are feeling empty-handed. God, I pray that you would fill them with your spirit. Lord, where there's healing that needs to take place, let it flow in Jesus' name. Where there are hurts that need to be healed, let it be healed in Jesus' name. Where there is a waiting and an aching and a longing for something that's not there, God, would you fill that space by your presence and your grace. Lord, for those here who have lost their job, or who the threat of losing their job is hanging over them right now. God, we pray for them specifically. We pray, Lord God, that through this time you would strengthen and encourage them. Lord, as their identity is threatened, as their security and confidence is undermined. Lord, I pray that they would experience the everlasting arms, the foundation of knowing who they are in God. Right now, if there's anyone here this morning and you've lost your job, And you're looking for a job. I want you just to lift your hand up. No one's looking. I'm going to pray for you right now that God would open the door for you. Just believe to do that. So Father, I want to pray right now for people who are are waiting and and are looking for an an expectation of a job. God, we pray in Jesus' name that a door would open by the power of your Spirit. God, we pray that even this week, even this next week or 14 days, that there would be encouraging signs. There would be CVs accepted. There would be interviews arranged. There would be emails received. God, we pray for that in Jesus' name. And Lord, while they wait, Lord, let them know that they are still alive in your hands. They are alive in your hands just as much as anybody else. So Father, would you fill them by your Spirit, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. You just pray. Grant us grace, O Father, to address you now with our hearts as well as our lips, to find you in strange places as well as the expected. And to wait for you in the secret sigh as much as in the song of praise. Amen. Amen. And you take your seats. Thanks, everyone. Isn't that just an amazing experience, wasn't it, to be a part of that? I want to thank all the musicians, the guys at the back, and Mark. Isn't that amazing? Can you see what it is yet? Rolf Harris. Isn't that amazing? Just part of aiding our worship and just as a look at that face, the face of grace, isn't it? You know, the face of Christ. And what I want to do this morning as we uh, come to the end of our series is um, I want to draw your attention to one verse in the book of Acts. So if you've got your Bible, if you turn with me to Acts chapter 11. We're going to use this one verse to launch from this morning. And just while you're finding that, let me just give you the background. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus uh, says to his disciples, listen, I'm about to go, boys. Uh, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And what's going to happen is when the Holy Spirit comes on you, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, where you live, in Judea, in the area, in Samaria, next to Judea, and to the ends of the earth. And uh, true to his word, the Holy Spirit came. And in Acts chapter 2, the, the believers are filled with the Holy Spirit. They burst out on the streets. In Acts 2.42, you read about the first church, you know, the church that met together in the homes and in the temple courts. And that was the Jewish church there in Jerusalem. And um, you you remember that that what Jesus said is that you will be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and the ends of the earth. The problem was the Jewish church got locked in to Jerusalem and never moved. But then in Acts 6 and 7, when Stephen comes on the scene and he's persecuted and eventually martyred, 
Under Saul, who was to become Paul, who wrote a lot of the New Testament, Saul persecuted the church, and what the command of Jesus couldn't get them to do, the persecution did. And so they burst out from Jerusalem because they had no choice. They needed to go out of Jerusalem. And when we pick it up in Acts 11, there's a group of believers who travel down to a place called Antioch. And they've set up a church at Antioch. And there's so much God stuff happening in this church that news of it goes back to the mother church, if you like, the headquarters back in Jerusalem. And the Bible says that they sent Barnabas to check out what on earth is going on in this church at Antioch. And that's the background to what we're going to say. So let's look at Acts chapter 11, verse 23. 22 says, News of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And here it is. When he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad. That's all we're going to, that's the only verse. When he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad. So he came to a church, and he saw, heard, felt, and experienced something which he read as evidence of the grace of God. Now you never really know what it is. But something was in that place that Barnabas could step into it and he could say, Do you know what? Grace of God is here. There's evidence. I think that's a brilliant verse. He saw the evidence of the grace of God and he was glad. If we are living in the grace of God, at the end of our series as we launch into the future, if we as a church, as individuals and as a community are living in the grace of God, there will be evidence. Do you know that? There will be signs. There will be fruit. There will be proof. Now, the Bible isn't clear out of this passage what those specific evidences were, but I want to suggest that evidence of the grace of God is not how great our lives are going at that time. It's not even how healthy our bodies are. It's not how happy we are with life. It's not how much we know or how much experience we have or how many great things we've done or are doing. I don't believe that those are the primary evidences of the grace of God. So what are the evidences of the grace of God? I want to give you five, which humbly in my opinion, are five key evidences of the grace of God in a life and in a community of faith. And at the end of this morning, in 30 minutes, okay, if we say, do you know what? I see those things at work in my life and in this community. Then you can rest assured that the grace of God is here. If we can't, then we need to be more open to the grace of God at work in our lives. Let me give you the first one. The first one is, we will be a growing people. I don't mean in size, okay? I mean we will be growing in our hunger for God, in our passion for God, in our experience of God, and in our knowledge of God. But most importantly, perhaps, we will be growing in the belief that we can change by God's grace. How many of you believe that we can change by God's grace? You see, you say that, but the reality is many of us as believers don't really believe that. We don't believe it. I want to do my second grace story and I thought about introducing this by singing to you, but I thought that would freak you out. But if I said I dreamed a dream in time gone by when hope was high and life worth living, what would I be referring to? Anyone know that? Les Mis. Okay, here it is. Les Miserables. Can I say, whenever you go to the cinema, whenever you go to the theatre, whenever you watch the television, please do not leave your Christian worldview at the door. Take it with you. Look for the signs of God. Look for what is 
contrary to God's truth as well. Don't go and watch anything you want to watch. There, there, yeah, that's a radical statement, isn't it? Go and watch it all, but only if you take your Christian worldview with you. So if any of you are going to see the film Paul, all right, which is a new film, come out, take your Christian worldview with you, because there's an attack on the Christian worldview within that comedy film, all right? I will go and see it when it comes out, but take it with you. And when you see Les Mis, anyone seen Les Mis? Or read the book or seen the A fantastic musical. But if you do not sit through that musical, going, wow, isn't God's grace amazing? You've missed the whole point of it. It was written by Victor Hugo, a French novelist who was a Christian who believed in the grace of God. And it's a great story about a, a prisoner called Valjean who is only known by a number. And out of prison, he's on the run. And he ends up in this, um, uh, staying at this priest's house. The priest gives him food and shelter. And to repay him, he steals from the priest and runs off. He's caught by the law. He's brought back to face justice. And as he's brought back to face justice with the priest who he's robbed, the priest says, oh, and by the way, you've forgotten some other stuff. And gives him more. Gives him grace. And Valjean is so overwhelmed with grace that he changes. The trajectory of his life completely changes in that moment because he's so overwhelmed by grace. He changes. And he begins to look after other people and he begins to be a good, good man and a godly man. And the other key character in the story, the, the policeman, Javert, he, he, he's also a recipient of grace, but he can't quite live in it. And so he is racked with unforgiveness and bitterness and revenge, and he dies like that in that state. And it's a great, great story. And the truth of that story is that grace flies in the face of the worldview that says, I can never change. In the words of the great theologian Popeye, I am what I am. And we don't believe that, do we? Because actually we are who God created us to be. And so when you look at Jacob in the Old Testament, who was a grasper and a deceiver, but God changed him and wrestled with him and gave him a limp and made him the father of a nation. You look at Gideon who was fearful and God made him a warrior. You know, and, and you look at Peter who was impetuous and angry and hot-tempered and God made him a rock and stability and the leader of the early church. You look at Mary Magdalene who sold her body to any bloke just to make herself feel better, who becomes a leader in the early church. And I believe that the grace of God, the evidence of the grace of God is that we will have a belief that people can change, including me, including you, and including others. Are you growing? Are you growing? Do you believe that you can grow? You see, I believe that John Newton believed that. I believe at 82, when he says, you know, grace is still amazing, he's growing. And I believe that one of the challenges for you and for me is, are we growing in our relationship with God? Is the grace of God at work so much in our life that we are growing? The Bible said we're changed from one degree of glory to another. If we are the same as we've always been, perhaps the grace of God is not at work in our lives. Number two. Another evidence of the grace of God is that we will be a loving people. Jesus said in John 13, 35, By this will all men know that you are my disciples if you love one another. The evidence, one of the evidences that you're living in the grace of God is not what you say or what you know, but how much you love. The identity of true followers of Christ will be recognized over time by the way they live and by the way they love. Anyone can look or sound spiritual. The test is, do they love? Are they more loving than they used to be? That is the acid test of whether the grace of God is at work in their lives. My theory on this that I've drawn up before and I probably should have drawn it up again is that we, all of us, create a circle that we focus on. So if you imagine a circle here, okay, this is an imaginary uh, flip chart, okay, not an imaginary friend. 
he's over here. But imagine we flip chart and imagine that there's a circle and we create a circle which we draw around. That's the people in our circle that we're going to love. Now, Jesus had people in his circle as well. And how many of you know it's difficult loving the people in your circle, isn't it? Jesus had Judas in his circle, for goodness sake. And we all do that and that's fine. But there are other circles as well. And there are four that I think of. There are circles where we would put people in and we would label them as different to us. And they're difficult to love, aren't they? We'd look at someone and we'd say, they're damaging or damaged. We'd look at someone and we'd say, they're, they're difficult. They're just really hard to get on with. Some even would be dangerous. And what we do is we draw a circle around the people that we're going to love and we leave the other circles away. But you know what? The call to follow Christ, the call to be full of grace, is a call to live beyond your own circle. So that means that the call on my life is to love people who are different from me. It's to reach out to people who may be difficult, who may even be damaged or damaging, who may at times be dangerous. Now, I am not saying that it's a reckless abandonment of common sense and wisdom and just go with no parameters or boundaries. I'm not saying that. But I am saying that the call to follow Jesus is a call to live beyond yourself. Let me put up another picture for you. Somebody, a friend, sent me this uh, just in, in the week. Or a week or so ago. And this is photographs taken from a, 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 a news report of a gay pride march that happened in Chicago recently. And many of you know that uh, in America and in this country as well, often when homosexuals go out on uh, marches and stuff, Christians can appear demonstrating with placards. And sometimes the words on those placards can be very inflammatory and very derogative. And many of you know, if you came to my session on homosexuality a few weeks ago at Encounter, we addressed that and talked about that as an issue. And we are talking about that and exploring that as an, as an issue. What impacted me about this story was not, here's a gay pride march and there's some Christians demonstrating. That didn't impact me. What impacted me, that there were a group of 30 Christians who were demonstrating, but with a difference. Instead of holding placards with inflammatory, uh, quite strong comments on, they had t-shirts that just simply said, we're sorry. We're sorry for the way that we've treated you. We're sorry for the things that we've said about you. Doesn't mean that they agree with the lifestyle choices on their sexuality and any of that. That's a whole different thing. But what they were there to witness to was they were witnessing there to a grace that loves beyond its circle. And what was amazing as I read the story is that the guy there with, 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 with no top on who's hugging one of these Christian guys, he's a guy called, named Tristan apparently, they actually then discovered the name of the person. And uh, the Christian and that guy are meeting for coffee and chatting and exploring their stories together. But as he was on one of these floats, dressed only in underpants, and he saw these Christians with these things, we're sorry, he broke down in tears, jumped off the back of the lorry, ran towards these guys and hugged him. It's grace, that is, isn't it? It's grace. I don't have to have the same opinion or view about you, but you're a human being. You're a human being. You may not be within my circle, But I follow a God who stepped outside of his circle to love a wretch like me. And if my God can get out of his circle to love me to the point of death, crucifixion and resurrection, then you and I as the hands and feet of Christ can do the same. And we can reach out of our comfortable, at times middle class Christian circles and we can love people who are different to us, who who we may not agree with, we may disagree with, but we can still reach out to them, can't we? So are you loving? And you know what? I know in my own life, and I'm not loving a lot of the time. And when I'm not loving, it's because I'm not being loved enough by God. It's because the grace of God isn't filling my life so much that it just overflows. 
So are you loving? The third evidence of the grace of God is that we will be a giving people. The Bible says, freely you've received, freely give. I want to say this. People who live in grace, in the grace of God, don't give because they have to or because they ought to. They give because they want to. And actually, they give because they're compelled to. Not by pressure, but by passion. See, pressure is an external force. Passion's an internal one. And Paul says, look, the, the love of Christ compels me. In other words, Christ is not like beating me, saying, you must do this. But I love God so much and the grace of God is so much at work in my life that I can't help but give of myself. And people who live in the grace of God will be giving people money, <laughs> time, themselves. They will be giving of themselves, not because they have to, but because they can't do anything but that. And I tell you what, really grace-filled people give when it costs as well. And I want to say just a little comment here to, to, to some of you, many of you, who are giving to this church through your offerings and through the third place giving. And I know that for many of you, it's been a costly thing to give in the way that you've been giving over these last months. And we really applaud you for that. Elders, we are so, so encouraged by that. Can I ask you to pray for us this next week to two weeks? It's a very critical couple of weeks for us. Please pray for us through this week. The elders are meeting in an extraordinary meeting this afternoon. Um, extraordinary because it's extra too ordinary and it might be extraordinary as well but they want to say emergency because it's not but it's just an extra meeting and we've got a meeting at Elim on Thursday which is our denominational headquarters so please pray for us there's some big things happening and we need some wisdom on that as well but I want to thank you for the way that many of you have given even when it's cost you and you see the reality is that if there's no grace of God flowing in us then we'll find it difficult to give and I tell you what, the more grace is in us, you won't be able to stop someone giving. Of either their time, their resources, their energy, or all of it. Let me read this to you. Once a man said, if I had some extra money, I'd give it to God. But I have just enough to support myself and my family. And the same man said, if I had some extra time, I'd give it to God. But every minute is taken up with my job, my family, my clubs, and what have you. Every single minute. And the same man said, if I had a talent, I'd give it to God. But I have no lovely voice. I have no special skill. I've never been able to lead a group. I can't think cleverly or quickly the way I'd like to. And God was touched. And so God gave that man money, time, and a glorious talent. And then he waited. And waited. And waited. And then after a while, God shrugged his shoulders. And he took all those things right back from the man. The money, the time, and the glorious talent. After a while, the man sighed and said, If only I had some of that money back, I'd give it to God. If only I had some of that time back, I'd give it to God. If only I could rediscover that glorious talent, I'd give it to God. And God said, Oh, shut up. <laughs> That's messed with your theology, isn't it? <laughs> and you know what the man told some of his friends? You know, I'm not so sure I believe in God anymore. Let me say, you can give without loving. You cannot love without giving. If you say you love God, you will give. If you don't give, you cannot love without giving. It's true of any relationship, isn't it? You cannot love anyone without giving of yourself, of your energy, of your resource, of your time to them. The test of whether we really love God 
is the, a, a way and the availability of our life and our resources to Him. And I tell you what, when times are tough, that's a real test about where our faith is and who our God is. Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Not heart and treasure, but treasure and heart. That's how you know where someone's heart is. It's where their treasure is. Treasure, time, talent and energy. So are you giving freely right now? Is the grace of God overflowing in your life? It's evidence. It's evidence. Number four. We will be a forgiving people. I just started to read a um, biography. I said autobiography at the last service, but that's wrong because he's been dead for 50 years. Uh, I read a new biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a German who was killed at the end of the Second World War. He was a pastor and a theologian and an amazing uh, writer. And Bonhoeffer had a big thing about grace. Uh, He had a big thing about what he called cheap grace. Okay, that he saw in the church in uh, Europe at that time, in the 30s, the way that, that, that there was this kind of sense that, well, I'm right with God, it doesn't matter about everybody else, and I can do what I want to do, and God will forgive me. And he called it cheap grace, as opposed to costly grace. And it's a phenomenal thing. And I want to talk about forgiveness for a moment, because I think that forgiveness can be cheapened as well. And we can, we can, we can apply cheap grace to forgiveness. Uh, an evidence of the grace of God is a life or a community who are marked by forgiveness. We receive forgiveness and live in it, but we give it out to each other and to others. Now let me say a few things. To forgive is not to condone, to excuse, to justify what's been done to you. To forgive is not to overlook what's happened to you. That is not forgiveness. You see, God did not overlook my sin in order to forgive me, did he? He didn't turn a blind eye on my sin. He didn't. He saw it fully for what it is. And it was worthy of death, separation from God for eternity. He didn't condone it. He didn't overlook it. He didn't ignore it. He didn't pretend it hadn't happened. But what he did was he provided a sacrifice for it so that he could forgive me. To forgive is not to condone. To forgive is not necessarily to forget. Some people think, oh, well, I can still remember this. That doesn't mean you haven't forgiven. To forgive is not necessarily to reconcile a relationship. It may be in certain situations that what has happened between you and another person is such, such extreme and so difficult that actually you're not going to reconcile that relationship in that sense. But you can still forgive. Forgiveness and reconciliation are different things. I think for most of what happens in the church of Jesus, okay, most of it, we should be going for reconciliation. But there are certain things that will have happened in your life where it will be difficult to do that. I understand that. To forgive is always personal. In other words, when people say, oh, the church hurt me, the church didn't hurt you. People hurt you. It's the same same with your company. And your company that hurt you, it was people that hurt you. We have an institutional blame culture, don't we, these days. It was people that hurt you. And it's people that you need to forgive. To forgive is always a process as well as a decision. And to forgive is to allow God to be God in our pain. Now, any of you remember a few years ago that, that um, situation that happened in the Amish community in the States? Anyone remember that? Where that milkman, uh, young or lad really, was, used to deliver the milk to the community, just, just kind of lost control and went into a school and shot, you know, killed five of those Amish kids. And, and they came out straight away saying, we forgive you. And I've been reading and researching that a little bit this week and just reading the articles that people are writing saying things like, oh, of course they didn't really forgive. You know, the church brainwashed them into doing that. They couldn't really, because the world cannot cope with grace. 
It can't cope with this idea that someone who'd been wounded like that could forgive. Now, that decision to forgive and a process to walk that forgiveness out are both important, aren't they? But I want to suggest to you this morning that if we're going to be marked by the evidence of the grace of God, we've got to be a forgiving people. And that often doesn't start with the dramatic big stories, but it starts with the little things. He sat in my seat. He didn't talk to me. He hurt me. He said something like this. She did this. She did that. It's the, it's the ability to forgive each other in the small stuff, which is a mark and an evidence of the grace of God in our lives. But even the bigger stuff is important for us to think about. Someone once wrote this, Despite a hundred sermons on forgiveness, we do not forgive easily, nor find ourselves easily forgiven. Forgiveness, we discover, is always harder than the sermons make it out to be. How many of you have experienced that? I have. As we've gone through this series, there's been two things that have cropped up for me. Nothing to do with Simeon now, okay? Just for those of you that know me. Two issues in my life, which are incredibly painful things in my life. There's, there's half a dozen big things that might it. These are two of the big things. And they've risen their heads in this last five, five weeks. And I said to God, God, why did you bring that up? Do you know what I mean? In this, in, when we're looking at grace, why have you brought that up? And I think God kind of said, well, because you're looking at grace. And it needs to continually work in your life. And I know that forgiveness is a hard thing to do. How do you know if you've forgiven someone? Well, let me give you a snapshot story. Joseph in the Old Testament is sold by his brothers, or he's beaten up by his brothers, left in a pit to die, sold into slavery, ends up in prison, ends up in a palace. They then have a famine, come down to Egypt, uh, meet Joseph, don't know it's Joseph, because he's now one of the most powerful men in the world, uh, in, in the country, and he's in, with the Egyptian makeup on and stuff, and they don't recognize him. But he forgives his brothers. How do you know he forgives them? Because of what he does, he clears the room of everybody else and he draws them close. If you want to know whether you've forgiven someone, ask this. You might say you've forgiven, but do you want other people to know how horrible that person is? Because if you still want other people to know how horrible they are and how bad they've been to you, there's a clue that you may not have fully forgiven them. But when we get to a point where we clear everybody else out, because it's just between us and them, that's a real important thing, isn't it? And he draws them close and offers them forgiveness. It's a powerful, powerful story. Now, in my opinion, Jesus' teaching on forgiveness is crystal clear. But the problem is, as well as being crystal clear, it's really difficult. It's not that it's not clear, it's just that it's so jolly difficult. So Jesus says this, if you've hurt someone and you have, someone, you have something against someone, okay? No, no, let me get that right. I'm going to get this wrong here. If, if, you, if somebody has hurt you, you need to go and start to put it right. But if you have hurt them, intentionally or unintentionally, you also still need to go and try and put it right. So basically, there is no wriggle room here if you're a follower of Christ. If there's someone in your world, in your life, and either you've hurt them or they've hurt you, or there's perception of either, the onus is on you to go and put it right. And here's the thing that I'm discovering more and more. There are people in my life that I've hurt in, unintentionally, and they've got a grudge against me, or whatever, and, that's that, and I don't know about it. But you know when I do know about it, I might well say, well, that's their problem. It's not their problem. It's my problem, because Jesus said to Cain, you know, what is it? Where's, where's your brother? Do you remember that? Not Jesus, God, said in, in, in the beginning of the Genesis. Am I my brother's keeper? Of course we are. Because we're humanity and we're in the body of Christ together. 
And actually, if somebody has a grudge against you, you may be the one that has the power to release them, not them. Because they're so caught up in that grudge that actually they're locked up in prison. But you have the power to begin to release them from that. And so I want to challenge you this morning that if there is somebody in your world, in your life, in your circle, or outside of that, and you know there is an issue between you and them, you have the power, to quote a lyric of a song, to go and start that process to release them. Let me read you a final story. South African woman stood in an emotionally charged courtroom, listening to white police officers acknowledge the atrocities they perpetrated in the name of apartheid. Officer Van der Broek acknowledged his responsibility in the death of her son. Along with others, he had shot her 18-year-old son at point-blank range. He and the others parted while they burned his body, turning it over and over on the fire until it was reduced to ashes. Eight years later, Vanderbroek and others arrived to seize her husband. A few hours later, shortly after midnight, they came back to fetch the woman, took her to a woodpile where her husband lay bound. She was forced to watch as they poured gasoline over his body and ignited the flames that consumed his body. The last words she heard her husband say were, forgive them. Now, several years later, Vanderbroek stood before the awaiting judgment. South Africa's Truth and Reconciliation Commission asked her what she wanted. So you understand what's happening here. Here's an officer. Here's a woman. Her husband and her son have been killed horrendously by this officer and other people. And they asked her, what did she want? I want three things, she said calmly. I want Mr. Vanderbroek to take me to the place where they burned my husband's body. I'd like to gather up the dust and give him a decent burial. Second... Mr. Vanderbroek took all my family away from me and I still have a lot of love to give. Twice a month, I would like for him to come to the ghetto and spend a day with me so I can be a mother to him. Isn't that phenomenal? Third, I'd like Mr. Vanderbroek to know that he's forgiven by God and that I forgive him too. I'd like someone to now lead me to where he's seated so I can embrace him and he can know that my forgiveness is real. As the elderly woman was led across the courtroom, Vanderbrook fainted, overwhelmed. Someone began singing Amazing Grace. Gradually, everyone joined in. This woman understood that to be reconciled with God and to be reconciled with neighbours and enemies is to be free indeed. Isn't that just an awesome story? And the depth and the power of that story can inspire us and can leave us demotivated to go and put things right with others because we say that's so extreme my issues are like that listen your our issues of forgiveness and unforgiveness that are little need to be dealt with and they need to be dealt with in the same power of grace that that woman experienced at that magnitude and so I want to challenge you this morning guys if we're going to live in grace we have to go and be grace carriers and forgive those who have hurt us or put right what we think we may have done unintentionally to others. Final thing I want to say, if you've got a Bible, turn to Matthew 17. Just a couple of minutes on this and then we're going to finish. The last thing I think is the evidence of the grace of God is that we will be a carrying people. What do I mean by a carrying people? And the picture here is of carrying light into darkness. Let me just read this to you. This is just a brilliant story. I just see the irony and the humour in this as well. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James and John, the brother of James, led them up a high mountain by themselves. So it's Jesus and three of his buddies up a mountain. There he was transfigured before them. 
Basically, that means that as they walked up the mountain, he was as a man in humanity. Transfigured meant all that humanity came off and they saw him for who he really was. I mean, that's phenomenal. They saw the brightness, the light. It says, there he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking. Which is, this is some kind of worship service. I mean, the band are hot today, aren't they? I mean, this is amazing. You know, not only are the songs great, but God is trans- Jesus transfigured before them. Moses and Elijah pitch up. This is incredible. Let's get the Christian television in and let's just film this because this is phenomenal. And then that's what Peter says next. Peter said, Lord, it's good for us to be here. Understatement of the year. If you wish, I'll put up three shelters. One for you, one for Moses, one for God. In other words, we'll put a structure around the glory of God. And we'll just preserve it here and it'll just be for us. Because wouldn't that be phenomenal if we could just live here on the mountain in the glory of God, in the grace of God, just looking at the brightness of God. Wouldn't that be awesome? And Moses and Elijah, great. It gets better. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud enveloped them. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my son. We've got God the Father here as well. I mean, this is incredible, isn't it? (laughs) This is my son, whom I love. I'm well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they bought the CD. No, they fell face down. They fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up. He said, don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. Just pause it there. Oh, can you feel that? Isn't that amazing? Just you couple of mates that you get on with, none of the difficult people, up on the mountain and the glory of God and two heroes from the past and the father saying, I love this, love my son and you're there. And the temptation is to build a structure around that, to build booths around it, to contain it, to bottle it, to live with it. Jesus doesn't say anything, but notice verse 9, as they were coming down the mountain. (laughs) So Jesus kind of said, all right guys, This has been great, but actually we're going down the mountain. And the very first person that they meet down the mountain is a demon-possessed young boy who needs setting free. And I want to tell you folks, the church of Jesus Christ, when Barnabas appeared at Antioch and he saw the evidence of the grace of God, he saw a group of people, I believe with all my heart, who passionately were in love with God, who were growing, who were loving, who were forgiving one another who were giving freely of their time and their resources, but who were carrying the light into darkness. And you see, our goal is not to stay on top where the glory is. Our goal is to take the glory from where it is to where it isn't. Our goal is to carry the grace of God from where it is to where it isn't. And if as a church and as an individual we lose sight of that, we have lost sight of who we are, haven't we? And so as we finish this morning and ask the band to come back up, I want to challenge us, the church, Zion Christian Center, you as a believer, if you're a Christian this morning, if you're not, we'd really love to introduce you to Christ and you can know the amazing grace that changes people's lives. You can know that, you can know it today. But if you are a believer this morning, I want to say to you, our goal, living in the grace of God, evidence of the grace of God, is that we are a people who do not stay for great worship services and great glory encounters and great grace-soaked experiences. That's brilliant and we need it, but we need it in order to send us down the mountain to set free those who are in chains, to carry the light into darkness, to take the glory from where it is to where it isn't. Will you stand with me? I want to 
read something over you this morning and then we're going to sing that song that Lee taught us earlier on about the glory of God. And there's one final thing. and There's one uh, blank board around the other side of there. And during this last song, if any of you want to come and you've got pens and stuff there and paints and just write thanks or prayer stuff or just whatever you want to do or you know just just to express your worship in a different way rather than just singing then you can come and use that blank uh, board around there that would be phenomenal so why don't we pray together let's pray God of grace through your amazing grace set all free from fear set all free from hate through your amazing grace, set all free for compassionate service. Set all free for just living. May your free grace overwhelm each and all to the glory of your name. Amen.